It's a football season unlike any other, and we're talking about it. This is Judas Football Show, talking all things NFL and college football on 750 The Game. Herbert's got it. Stiff arm again. Quarterback in the clear. Inside the 10. A hand trick of touchdown from Justin Herbert. Now, here's Judah Newby. Welcome in, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in on this Saturday morning, a debut episode of Chuda's Football Show, where we talk all things football, college, and the NFL, and more. Saturdays right here on 750 The Game. It's an experiment of sorts, a pilot episode, but excited to be here talking some football. And yes, there are questions still about if and when the Pac-12 is going to have a football season. And will it include an opportunity to compete for the college football playoff? How many games can they fit in? When will the season start? Will we see our Ducks and Beavers playing on Halloween? That could be a fun way to usher in a newly branded rivalry between Oregon and Oregon State. Who is even good in the Pac-12 this year? And who will be playing for the local teams? We'll get into that and a lot more. Plus, I'm going to dive into some of the top matchups in the NFL this week in Week 2. Already underway with the Browns beating the Bengals 35-30 on Thursday Night Football. And I'll tell you why Joe Burrow is the real deal for Cincinnati. Great other matchups in Week 2. Seahawks and Patriots on Sunday Night Football that you can hear right here on 750 The Game. Russell Wilson, a monster performance in the win at Atlanta. Cam Newton, a big rushing day, debuting for New England. That different-looking offense for Josh McDaniels now that Tom Brady is in Tampa Bay. I'll also talk to Tyson Alger of The Athletic about the Oregon Duck roster as they head into a potential season. That's coming up at 9.30. But first, will the Pac-12 play a football season? We've had so much develop over the past two days. The Big Ten deciding they're going to reverse course from their decision to postpone. They will play a season. It was unanimous from their presidents and chancellors. Their season's going to start the weekend of October 23rd and 24th. They just unveiled the schedule for week one earlier this morning, as well as Ohio State-Michigan being played in December for the first time in that rivalry's history, December 12th, the last regular season date of that Big Ten condensed schedule. It would be an eight-week season with the Big Ten title game December 19th. That date is significant because as it stands now, that's one day before the college football playoff selection date. You could reasonably include the Big Ten in that along with the ACC, the Big 12, and the SEC. As for the Pac-12, right now does not officially have a football schedule. Larry Scott was on the Dan Patrick Show yesterday with some context. We'll bring you some of that audio The Pac-12 also announced on Friday night that they are going to reconvene the Pac-12 CEO group next Thursday, September 24th, with their decision whether or not to play football before January 1st, which was the original date of their postponement timeline. Now, the Pac-12, though it does not have a football schedule, it does seem and feel like a season in the fall is becoming more imminent. It seems that a schedule starting November 7th would be in place for the Pac-12 if they decide to play. That would mean seven total weeks between then and the current college football playoff selection date. No bye weeks, of course. Every team would play six games, and the last weekend would be dedicated to the Pac-12 championship game. 
No vote took place when the presidents and chancellors met with Larry Scott on Friday, except for the decision to reconvene Thursday next week, September 24th. So the question arises, if you have a vote Thursday, September 24th, can you get unanimous approval from all 12 schools to start training camp practice Monday, September 28th? Because if you can, that would allow six full weeks before the first game, if the first game is Saturday, November 7th. Six weeks seems to be the amount of time needed to conduct the football workouts and not just stay in shape workouts, but football-specific sessions to get players healthy and ready for a season. So just from a timeline standpoint, you would need a decision Thursday, September 24th, when they meet next, so you could start practicing the following Monday. If you get that, you've got a chance. Now, it would also help if the College Football Playoff Selection Committee agreed to push back their selection date for the four CFP teams for the semifinals. But as I dig into this a little bit more, that seems problematic. I don't see the College Football Playoff Committee being able to move off of their date Sunday, December 20th, to pick the teams for the College Football Playoff. First reason being, the semifinals are on January 1st. In a season where you've already lost a lot of revenue opportunity if you're in the College Football Playoff, You don't want to give up the big January 1st window. That is where all your revenue is going to be made. The Island Games and the two semifinals on New Year's Day, which falls on a Friday this year. The two semifinal games, by the way, are the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl. There was some conversation if the Pac-12 and the Big Ten stayed in lockstep that they could play their own Rose Bowl game sometime in the spring and call that the Big Ten and the Pac-12 champion meeting, and the granddaddy of them all. But that really wasn't going to be able to happen if the college football playoff was still being played because it's a semifinal this year, Rose Bowl being a semifinal. So you can be as fluid and flexible and malleable and nimble as you want and all the words that people say that you got to be right now in this time of COVID, the time of uncertainty and unpredictability, but you really can't move the semifinals from January 1st. That, to me, is an unreasonable expectation and request. So if those games are going to stay there, you need to give your programs an adequate amount of time to get ready for those games if they indeed make the field. Therefore, I don't see December 20th changing. It's going to remain the same. College football playoff selection day is going to be Sunday, December 20th, currently one day after the Big Ten championship game. That's the situation as far as the college football playoff is concerned, and the Pac-12. So if you are the Pac-12 and you want a reasonable, quote-unquote, shot at making the college football playoff this year, Thursday, September 24th, when the Pac-12 CEO group meets, you have to have a vote, and you've got to vote unanimously to play a season. Training camp practices would have to be greenlit for the following Monday, which would be September 28th. The sixth and final week of practices would be the week of Monday, November 2nd. Election Day, Tuesday, November 3rd, which I don't believe teams are allowed to practice on that day now with the new voting rules. And then Game 1 of the Pac-12 season would be the weekend of Friday, November 6th and Saturday, November 7th. Now, this is just me spitballing in theory what the season could look like if indeed the Pac-12 decides to play. Now, part of my feeling is 
November 7th, we could see those regional rivalries for the Pac-12 right out of the gate. There's a version of this where it could be Oregon versus Oregon State on Saturday, November 7th. And because regionally, both in proximity and familiarity, that could be attractive to the Pac-12. They could honestly capitalize right out of the gate with full rosters, presumably healthy and available before you've actually played games. You already have the daily tests going by this point, six weeks in at the very least. And it could benefit the Pac-12 to get these rivalry games right out of the gate. Imagine seeing Washington, Washington State, Oregon, Oregon State, you know, ASU, Arizona, USC, UCLA, Stanford, Cal, Utah, Colorado. Those games could be, in my opinion, the first ones on November 7th. And it could benefit the Pac-12 to do that. But there is a good question to be asked in all of this. And many of you who have listened to us throughout the week and are listening right now have asked this as well. And is it worth it? Is it worth playing a college football season? I think people are going to disagree on a lot of this. Is it worth it? And frankly, I'm a little bit past the conversation myself, whether or not it's worth it to play a college football season. Not because I think there's a clear and obvious answer, but because I I just feel that it is imminent that the Pac-12 will play football. Color me shocked if on Thursday, September 24th, the Pac-12 comes out of it and says, we're not comfortable playing any sort of football this fall. I would be shocked if they say that coming out of their meeting next Thursday night, which is the next time the CEO group is going to meet with Larry Scott. I think they are going to play football. So whether or not it's worth it, I'm a little bit further than that now. However, the question of whether or not it's worth it to compete for the college football playoff this year or be eligible for the college football playoff this year, that to me is a reasonable question because it's a different-looking college football playoff than it's ever been before. Plus, the Pac-12 hasn't exactly been a major player in college football playoffs, annually speaking. Every so often, they'll have a team that competes deep or at least makes the semifinal in the case of Washington a couple of years ago. But is it worth it this year, this version of the college football season, for the Pac-12 to be eligible? What I mean is, do they need to work as hard as possible to get a season up and running simply because of the motivation that they want to be considered for the college football playoff. That is why the Big Ten got busy this week. And that is why, certainly because of outside pressures in that conference, but it was also because they want one of their teams to be playing New Year's Day in the semifinals, whether it's the Rose Bowl or the Sugar Bowl. They want one of their teams competing there and competing for the national championship on Monday, January 11th. For the Pac-12, I'm not so sure... That will, that volition is there. And I know Oregon fans might be cringing because Ducks certainly had a reasonable opportunity and a shot to make the playoff this year if fully healthy in a normal season given what was on their schedule. But everything has changed to this point. So when I ask, is it worth it, I'm really examining, is it worth it for the Pac-12 to really have to be eligible to compete for the Pac-12 or for the college football playoff? So John Wilner had a piece in the Bay Area News Group suggesting that even if the conference does not have a team make the college football playoff, it is still reasonable to expect that the Pac-12 would get its full share of revenue from the college football playoff media rights deal with ESPN. 
Wilner writes, quote, The hotline is aware of nothing in the contracts that would prevent the conference from collecting its full media rights share from the college football playoffs agreement with ESPN. So why is that important? Well, as I mentioned earlier, this was not going to be a traditional Rose Bowl year for the Pac-12 anyway. Rose Bowl is the semifinal game for the playoff, along with the Sugar Bowl. So Wilner details in those types of situations, the postseason revenue for the Pac-12 dips already from about $115 million, that's the number in years that they have a Rose Bowl game in the Pac-12, to about $85 million if the conference does not have a team in the Rose Bowl semifinal game, meaning they didn't qualify for the college football playoff. So $85 million is your typical revenue share in years where you don't have a, rev, a Rose Bowl game to be played in your conference and you don't make the college football playoff. Now, whether or not those numbers are still accurate for this season, affected by COVID, with stadium attendance being called into serious question, we should expect that number to de- decrease, and maybe significantly. Total revenue to be shared in the college football playoff pie could be dramatically different. My point is, it's not like the Pac-12 won't get any money from the college football playoff this year, even if they don't compete or if they don't qualify. Wilner says there is no language in the contracts that the Pac-12 has to qualify in order to get its share of the revenue pie from the CFP. That said, it could be a way smaller pie than most years. It might be down more around 45 or $50 million. I'm just theorizing at this point than the 85 number. But again, if it was already going to be a diminished revenue season for the Pac-12 from the college football playoff, regardless if the Pac-12 qualified or not, especially if they didn't have a Rose Bowl, there remain questions about how many games any of these conferences are going to be able to play, which players are going to be playing for their respective schools, which players are simply opting out given the uncertainty. Of course, many from the Oregon Ducks have done that. How much of an incentive really is there to make the playoff this year. My answer, at least from a Pac-12 perspective, is not much. From an Oregon Duck perspective, the team with the best likelihood to make the college football playoff this year, yes, it hurts not to be given the opportunity. But with players opting out, and many of your stars like Panay Sewell already signing with agents, as our own John Cazano broke the news Friday, Sewell signing with Athletes First, And questions remain if those athletes that did opt out and have signed with agents will be granted exemptions by the NCAA if they choose to come back and want to play this season. Honestly, I think all the factors involved, the writing was on the wall. This is a season that will be remembered by Oregon fans about what could have been, what wasn't, and the season that was overshadowed by so much going on of greater consequence in our state, in our region, and in our world. This is Judah's football show on 750 The Game. When we come back, Larry Scott was on the Dan Patrick Show Friday morning. We'll revisit some of that conversation if you missed it. We'll get the latest on the Oregon Duck roster, what shape it might take with a season looking more and more likely. We'll do that with the Athletics' Tyson Alger at the bottom of the hour. I'll also give you my thoughts on the NFL schedule this weekend, highlighted by the Seahawks and Patriots on Sunday Night Football. 
including why, as a Seahawks fan, I'm starting to get a little bit more worried about this matchup as we get closer to kickoff. Be right back. Judas Football Show on 750 The Game. This is Judas Football Show, talking all things NFL and college football on 750 The Game. Hey, welcome back. Saturday morning at 7.50 the game. This is Judah's football show. We're going to talk to Tyson Alger of The Athletic coming up in a couple moments. Refamiliarizing ourselves with the Oregon Duck football roster given a season is more likely. It certainly is not official quite yet, but given that it's more likely, why not dip back into the bag with Tyson Alger and see what we might be looking at with the Oregon Ducks. Players that have opted out. Uh, players that will be playing. We'll also talk some Beavers this hour as well. I uh, wanted to get to Larry Scott's conversation on the Dan Patrick Show in case you missed it. Some good audio from this. Dan did a great job uh, talking to Larry and getting the answers out of him. This was before the Pac-12 CEO group ended up meeting on Friday afternoon. The result, though, of that meeting on Friday was not a whole heck of a lot except for a decision to reconvene once again next Thursday, September 24th, at which point the Pac-12 will have another choice to make. Are we going to play football before January 1st, the date originally listed from their postponement decision in August? Larry Scott on the Dan Patrick Show on 750 The Game, Judas Football Show. He's uh, Larry Scott, Pac-12 commissioner, joining us early. Uh, good morning, commissioner. As of this morning, where do we stand with football in the fall with Pac-12? Um, we've had a lot of progress over the last uh, day or two, especially with public health officials in California and, and Oregon. And uh, this on the heels of the deal we did with Quidel, which gives us access to daily testing with rapid results, uh, things brought us a long way. Uh, so our medical advisory committee uh, is much more comfortable with us going forward, and it looks like the hurdles have been cleared in terms of the public health authorities uh, in the states of California and Oregon, so things are looking a lot more promising. So I've got a call today with our presidents and chancellors. We're going to take stock of, of where we are and see if we're comfortable with a path forward before January 1st, which was what our previous decision was, and we'll see if we can align with others in college football still this fall. What I was told yesterday, and you obviously can uh, correct me if you need to, that if you're looking at a date, it'd be probably around Halloween, that uh, first game in the uh, Pac-12. So if we're going to move forward, it depends on how quickly uh, we can get back uh, to practice. You know, six weeks would be from Monday, but we're, we're only getting these uh, rapid tests next week. So I think that would be the most ambitious, okay. uh, maybe maybe a week or two too quick for us. But some, somewhere in that zip code is where we'd be playing if we're playing. But also, it, uh, it's going to preclude you, I think, from being qualifying for the uh, playoff, the final four, right? Well, uh, if we were to play uh, this fall, I don't think anyone can predict. I was, I was on the call with my fellow commissioners, and uh, you know, we've got a board of the college football playoff. I don't think if you ask any of my fellow commissioners, they can tell you how many games their teams are going to play. 
They know what they're going to try to play, but we've already seen in the first two weeks, every league that's tried to play has had to postpone games. So no one's feeling supremely confident at this point, especially those that don't have daily tests, uh, that they're, all their team's going to play every game. So I think, um, you know, it's uncharted territory. We don't know how many games each um, league's going to play. There are going to be many more differences than we're normally used to. And I don't know, you know, whether the average is going to be six games or eight games. I don't think anyone can tell you. We don't know what player availability is going to be. And the committee is going to have the work cut out from. There's going to be a lot more subjectivity this year than the best. I would not rule anything out. So more likely to play in the fall than the spring, because last time we had you on a couple of weeks ago, you said, you know, we're, we're targeting the spring or right after, uh, you know, January more likely fall football than spring football? I'd say at this stage, uh, it's promising. You know, we've, um, it's amazing how much has happened in the last five weeks since we made our decision. And the good news is, you know, we got access to the kind of testing our medical folks required sooner than we thought. We've gotten public health authority <laughs> approval, uh, uh, you know, quickly, earlier than we thought. And so we've tried, we've tried to do a couple of things, Dan, and I appreciate the chance to talk to you. We've, we've tried to be transparent about what we're doing, deliberate health and safety first. But at the same time, our student athletes want to play and our coaches want to play, our fans want to play. So we've been committed to explore every possibility to do so when we felt it was safe and we had appropriate approval. So we're trying to be nimble and flexible too. And uh, uh, you know, our president's chancellors have been that too. And that's why they're convening on a call real time to address this new information. and. Yeah, if we, if we can provide an opportunity for our student athletes to play as soon as it's safe, they want to play. And we owe them that if we can do it. You think you'll know by Monday if you're playing? I think we have to decide, you know, by next week um, if we're moving forward. Do you have a target date? Not yet. Okay. No. I, I, you know, I need to. This has been a rapidly escalating series of events over the last 24 hours. And um, I need to see where my presence and chancellors are, which I'll know later today. But what changed? Is it just the rapid testing, like the approval of the governors of Oregon and California? For, for us, the game changer was being the first conference to get access to daily testing. And those tests are being shipped to us on Monday uh, with the machines and the readers. Uh, and the reason for that is our medical advisors, you know, they concerns about heart, the prevalence of the spread of the virus, uh, and they uh, didn't feel comfortable playing the sport of football or basketball for that matter, if they thought, you know, the practice or the games could lead to the spread of the virus beyond what people might get in their communities or at the dining halls or in their dorms or whatever, the act of playing football or basketball couldn't lead to the spread. And uh, getting access to daily testing gives them a high degree of confidence that's not going to happen. So that was the game changer for us. And I think it was a game changer for the public health officials, which was the second major thing that just happened, um, you know, within the last 24, 36 hours. Is it everybody has to play or nobody plays in the Pac-12? Um, up till now, uh, we've been completely unified in our approach, and I expect that will continue to be the case. Last time we talked, and I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, uh, but it felt like you were saying that the Big 12 and the ACC and SEC were being a little more reckless. You were being very overly cautious, and so was the Big 10. Do you still feel that way? Well, I doubt I ever used the word reckless uh, with, with my peers. Um, they, um, I mean, yeah, that's I, why I was paraphrasing there. But you, you, were, you, were, you sent a message there, whether you intended to or not. Fair, fair enough. No, I think what I was trying to suggest is we have been more cautious. 
Um, and I think, you know, the values in every part of the country are, are a little bit different, the priorities and the pressures that people feel. And I think our league, and this is something I'm proud of with our schools, have wanted to err if they were going to err on the side of safety, the health and safety and welfare of the student athletes, even if it would come at a significant cost, uh, TV revenue, attendance, uh, et cetera, and people want to play. Um, and we drew a line in the saying we weren't going to do it unless our medical advisors were, were very confident and comfortable. And of course, we need public health authority approvals and different leagues made different decisions. But I, I, you know, I've tried to be careful not to cast judgment on anyone else's decision making. I just like to talk about the values we, we've had, which have been more conservative and cautious. And I think on our show before we talked about that's a microcosm of what's going on in society, too. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to figure this out with your role. When you get the presidents on the phone, do you advise them? Like, do you say this is what I want to do or is it you guys tell me what you want to do? Um, you know, it's a it's a combination of those things. You know, um, my job is to reflect and carry out what our 12 schools ultimately want to do. But they rely on me to uh, you know do the legwork, uh, bring them the facts and make a recommendation. That's what I'll do. And your recommendation is to play football in the fall. Oh, they're going to hear my recommendation first. Your recommendation is to play football in the fall. We, 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 we've overcome the major obstacles that, that we had and the criteria that our medical advisors set uh, with the public health authority approvals. And now, but, you know, our president's chances have to weigh uh, the issues on their campuses. They'll be the ultimate decision makers. But in terms of the metrics and the issues we talked about in mid-August, the reasons why we weren't going forward, We've made tremendous progress and have overcome those things. So normal, I'll, 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 report, I'll report them that we've achieved those things, and, and then it's up to them to weigh it all and decide. And normally you would want to know what the vote's going to be before you take the vote, but what you're saying is if there is a, a chancellor or president who says, look, I just don't feel comfortable doing that, can they sit out this football season and the Pac-12 continues to play with everybody else? We've never done that. And I don't know if we would do that or not up till now. So you think you can get a consensus vote? I, we've had a consensus at every step of the way, and I okay. expect we're going to have a consensus on this. Good luck. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I always appreciate you coming on. I know it may feel like a firing squad at times, but I, my job is to get answers. It's a very important issue, and uh, I know it's, it, it's fluid. It's day-to-day, -day, almost hour-to-hour -hour trying to get this done, and I wish you luck. I uh, appreciate it, Dan. Thank you. That's uh, Larry Scott, commissioner of the Pac-12. Well, that was good stuff from Dan Patrick and Larry Scott. Again, the CEO group did meet on Friday, and they've determined to meet again on Thursday, September 24th. That is my feeling when they will have a vote whether or not to play a football season. I think that they will play. Larry Scott seems to feel that uh, there's no question it's going to be a unanimous decision and then the start date comes into question, November 7th, that weekend, looking all the more likely. You'd only be able to play about six regular season games with a seventh weekend for a Pac-12 title game. Probably, at that point, not going to be considered for the college football playoff. Going to talk to Tyson Alger of The Athletic next. What does Oregon Ducks roster currently look like? And refresh some of the narratives around this team. That's coming up later. Plus, we'll dive into the NFL Week 2 schedule. Get some picks in there, too. Judas Football Show on 750 The Game. When it's time to party, we will party hard.
This is Judas Football Show, talking all things NFL and college football on 750 The Game. Oof, boy, coming in hot. Just past the bottom of the hour on this Saturday morning, 9.35 here in the greater Portland area. Thanks for being along. It's a debut episode, Judas Football Show, right here on 750 The Game. Let's go out to the uh, phone lines right now. Excited to talk once more. First time, long time, honestly. <laughs> Tyson Alger of The Athletic. We're going to re-familiarize ourselves a little bit with the major storylines going around with the, the Oregon Ducks football program. Because even though a season is not yet official, it is looking all the more imminent and likely. So why not dip back into the Oregon bag with my man Tyson? Tyson, it is uh, good to talk to you, my friend. How are you? Hey, man, I'm doing I'm doing just fine. You know, it, it's a Saturday. We're talking college football. I, I do kind of wish that I was, like, on my way to Eugene right now, like the old times, and tuning in and listening to, like, your smoky report. But, <laughs> um, you know what, it, it, it does kind of look like we might have something uh, here in the coming months. So, uh, you know, that's that, that's more than we've been given in quite some time here uh, uh, since things shut down in March. So I'm uh, I'm optimistic this morning. All right. So what's it been like for you and your coverage on The Athletic? Uh, I know you, you take a football-specific view out of a lot of these, you know, things and the, the matchups and breaking down what's going on with the Oregon players and the narratives around the program. But this has got to be unlike any type of coverage you've experienced given everything that's been going on. Yeah, I mean, since March, it's just been, you know, this this is would have been my uh, seventh season on the Ducks beat, I believe, and it's pretty routine, and we're so used to our schedules and how everything, you know, it just uh, goes by the course of, of the fo- football schedules, and, and since March, everything's just been uh, completely thrown off, and, you know, we spent so many months kind of doing, like, fun, like, distraction, like, remember when type of pieces, like, I wrote some stuff on, like, you know, when Nike introduced the Oregon uniforms and, and those types of look back things. But as we've kind of accelerated here towards when we should have been playing football, um, it's really uh, um, changed more into a, a bit of a news job just because, you know, with, with the various announcements the Pac 12s had and the cancellations and postponements and releases of new schedules and players opting in and out and all that. I mean, it's, um, and things are happening at such a rapid pace, especially this past week. It, it's been, uh, it's it's definitely been the uh, the strangest September of uh, of my college football reporting career so far. Are you now personally getting ready for a season? Like like my feeling at the top of the show was, look, I mean, you, you can debate whether or not we should be playing football, sure, but I'm a little bit past that. It seems like a season is imminent. So from your standpoint as well, are you thinking, all right, it's time to gear up. Uh, let's at least get in some sort of mental state to be able to co- uh, cover a college football season for the next couple of months? Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to get there, and I definitely will, but uh, it's it's been a it, – it, it, I'm sure it's the same situation with you, but, I mean, like, just the will they, won't they for the past three months, it can play some mental games with you, yeah. uh, no, especially with uh, – that's my job is covering the Ducks full-time, and, and if it didn't look like there was going to be Ducks coverage this fall, you know, it was – of like 
this these past couple weeks after the postponement, I was really just diving deep into like hockey draft boards, and then now all of a sudden it looks like we have to ramp back up to football, which is awesome because. Um, you know, I'm based here in Portland. This is this is my job, and, and I love I love what I do. But it's uh, uh, you know the players obviously have to ramp up in an accelerated schedule, and I think we do too because it's you know I, I think at some point we all kind of just figured that okay this thing's not going to happen, and now here three weeks later or whatever it is, uh, it looks like we might have an announcement next week. So yeah, it's uh, certainly unlike anything we've experienced. Tyson Alger of the Athletic joining us uh, this could be mutually beneficial then Tyson because uh, you've mirrored a lot of my same sentiments of like all right let's uh, get more familiar with what some of these uh, the rosters might look like notably with the Oregon Ducks your beats with the athletic what will this season look like for them should there be one and I'm assuming we might have a couple more opt-outs we still don't know if the players that have already opted out, will be granted exceptions to come back, or if they even want to come back, like Thomas Graham, Panay Sewell, uh, D'Amador, Lenore. But outside of, of of those guys, Tyson, can you remind us, uh, what does this roster look like? The, some of the standouts, some of the stars, and if there are no more opt-outs from this point, uh, what is Oregon's roster looking like? Yeah, so, I mean, obviously it's disappointing to lose Sewell and, and Graham and Lenore, and, like, all of those were three really good players who were going to, you know, potentially be really big pieces on what I thought of, could have been a college football playoff team this fall. But, you know, we're going from the potential of not having football to all of a sudden having maybe seven games. And for Oregon, yeah, it, it kind of stinks that they might not make the playoff, but this is still a really good opportunity and a fun time to be an Oregon fan to watch this because – now Cristobal is three or four recruiting classes in. He's continuing to bring this just world-class talent into in Eugene. I mean, you can look at the 2021 class that they've been putting together, which is ranked number three in the country right now. But, you know, just looking at the cornerback position, for instance, where, where Graham and Lenore are going to be gone, uh, you now have a spot for Michael Wright, who was phenomenal when he was on the field as a freshman last year, but was kind of buried by a little bit of that depth. And then you also have a spot for Dante Manning, uh, the kind of unheralded five-star that the Ducks signed in their class last year that was over, kind of overshadowed by, like, Justin Flo and Noah Sewell. Um, and especially with, with the fact that, like, um, the NCAA granting, like, the eligibility waivers for this year and the fact that this won't count against anybody's clock, it's kind of like, yeah, it might be, like, in an extended spring and it might not seem like it's as competitive as any other fall, but Oregon has the ability to get a lot of guys uh, meaningful playing time this fall if they do play that will help them vastly down the road because this is a team that's still peaking um, with the depth that's been with the talent that's been coming in so like a player like Tyler Shuck uh, a quarterback who's been behind Justin Herbert in the last two years this is incredibly valuable time for him uh, they have a lot of talent at wide receiver position I want to see like what Micah Pittman who has been really leading the cause within the Oregon roster of trying to get them to play this fall I want to see what he's able to do with a healthy season. This is definitely a team that still has a lot of talent. Um, so it will be fun to watch this fall. It's just going to be different, man. It's it's, it's going to be weird, but it, it's something, right? Oh, man, is it ever. Do you think the incentive to, uh, to come back and play is affected at all by, like, an urgency to compete for the college football playoff this year? Or basically what I mean is, you know, how important is it uh, to a team like Oregon, from your sense of the coaching staff and the program at large, to be given every and any opportunity t 
to be considered for the college football playoff this year, given the modified structure of everything? Man, it, that's a tough one to gauge because, I mean, that's obviously the huge loss for the Ducks this year is, is the potential of, like, the roster that they were coming into this year with not being able to compete in a full season and, and to get to that point. Um, but I kind of just go back to, to where this Oregon roster looks, looks like it's heading. And uh, it would be one thing if, like, this was a completely, like, senior-heavy roster uh, and this was, like, the make-or-break moment for them. Um, but I, I do think this is a roster that's still on its way up that, that will be – that this wouldn't have been the peak year for them, even though they did have, you know, potentially the best left tackle that they've ever had at the school. Um, but, you know, it's, it, it's tough. And I, Oregon is a team that, that does thrive off of that na- national recognition, and, and that is kind of what they also – preach on the recruiting trail is, you know, we're not just a team that's trying to beat, you know, Washington State and the Pac-12 North. We want to be competing for these national titles. And, uh, you know, not having your brand affiliated with that for a year does hurt a bit. But um, Oregon has continued to sign top-level recruits even after the Pac-12 postponement happened. So um, I I think this this roster is still peaking, and and this this wouldn't be the end of the world for, for Oregon at the very least. Um, if they weren't able to to make the playoff this year. But, uh, I mean, if, if that's going to happen, they have to do it pretty quick. And, and from listening to Larry Scott on Dan Patrick yesterday, it kind of sounds like the Pac-12 is banking that the other conferences are going to have many postponements moving forward in, other words, in, in order to get them down to a, an equal level of games, which is kind of just seems like a, a gambler's bet at this point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. We're talking to Tyson Alger of The Athletic. And the fact that the uh, Rose Bowl is one of the semifinal games this year. So I know there was like a a small hint of, you know, if the Big Ten and the Pac-12 were walking in lockstep playing spring football, they could play their own Rose Bowl. But uh, the Rose Bowl, you know, the pop and circumstance of it was already being uh, sapped by the college football playoff semifinal New Year's Day. So it would certainly lose its luster. Uh, Tyson, one of my theories with as far as teams being able to be good in such a different type of season this fall is that it would favor teams that are fundamentally sound and that are just simply tougher by nature. Like their default setting is ground and bound, be tough, win in the trenches, be a little bit more simple and a little bit less sophisticated, but a little bit more tougher, stronger, more powerful. You know, those things you do control. And when I say that out loud, that would seem to favor an Oregon football style of play with who they have on the offensive line. Uh, A, do you agree with that theory, or would you modify it any any bit? And B, what does Oregon look like on the offensive line now? Because, first of all, they, they lost a lot of guys to go pro last year, and, of course, Panay Sewell has recently opted out and signed with an agent. Yeah, that's a that that is a tough one because I I, I do agree with with the the principle of your theory in that you, you know I, I think a physical team that beats you in the trenches like that can travel that can start up in the middle of November that you know it's 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 a lot easier to do that than to have a billion different parts that's all relied upon uh, skill talent. The the one concern I would have with Oregon um, is just the fact that they do have a, a a new offensive coordinator in Joe Moorhead who you know wasn't able to really install much during the spring. Um, but this is a talented roster. I think Moorhead's one of the better offensive uh, coordinators in the country, um, and they have plenty of talent to work with. You know, So we can look at this offensive line, and uh, losing Sewell stinks for them. Uh, they were going to have four new starters on the line as it was, but 
for the last two years, Alex Mirabal, the offensive line coach, has said that they've had like seven or eight guys that they feel like could be com- that they'd be comfortable with as as starters. And that was last year. And so, you know, guys like uh, uh, Sala Amave, uh, guys like Alex Forsythe, uh, Stephen Jones, uh, this big, big, big. I think he's like six six. 340. Um, he's, he's a redshirt sophomore, and he's going to be probably now shifting over to the left tackle position uh, to be replacing Penne. So, uh, you know, that, that's going to be a name that I think a lot of people are going to uh, know. Uh, he, he came in with Sewell's class. I mean, and then just kind of had to, had to sit behind that depth because the Ducks had, you know, such an experienced offensive line uh, dating back that the majority of those guys were together since the 2016 season. So, um, yeah, it, I mean, that, that will be really fun to watch because this will be the first offensive line that's all recruited by Cristobal. Um, so to really just see what, like, his talent and coaching uh, does with that line uh, will still be interesting to watch this fall. Tyson Alger of the Athletic on Judas Football Show, 750 the game. When we examine Tyler Shuck, uh, sophomore season of eligibility for him, stepping into this role as quarterback for Oregon, <laughs> different type of season, we preface that with every single topic right now, but uh, how does he differ a little bit in skill set uh, from Justin Herbert, and how does he kind of fit? Obviously, with Joe Moorhead's offense, it's going to be a little bit different from what we saw last year, but when you think about Tyler Shuck and his role, uh, both in terms of skill set and leadership, you know, where does your mind take you? Yeah, you know, he actually, skill set-wise, He's kind of similar to Herbert, just in that like he, he's a prototypically kind of sized quarterback who, who does have the ability to run. Uh, you know, he's not as built as Justin was, but he's still got time to grow into that body. Um, and in Moorhead's offense, he probably will be running more than we saw Herbert run the majority of his career. Um, you know, I don't know if it will be kind of like the battering ram type of style we saw Herbert in the Rose Bowl against Wisconsin back in January, but. Um, uh, that that will be uh, more of a part of Oregon's offense. Uh, the biggest difference between Shuck and Herbert is just their personality. You know, I, I don't know if how how many people outside of like the Oregon bubble have have seen Shuck yet, just because he hasn't been you know front and center with interviews and stuff. But he's a real confident kid. He's he's very uh, laid back. He's loose. He he likes to joke with his teammates and stuff. And not saying that Herbert didn't, but we all just kind of know that Herbert was a little bit more of a introverted per- personality. I, I think Shuck is a little bit more of that like prototypical like cocky his teammates have uh, uh um compared him to like drew lock denver's quarterback uh, who you know if, if you if you're on twitter which i hope none of you are <laughs> but uh, uh drew lock is one of the more uh jiffable quarterbacks in the nfl right now a guy that just really enjoys playing um so <laughs> i i think this fall uh is, i think this fall is very important for shucks because we've been talking about him for about a year and a half now we all think that he can do it but the Ducks have a very good quarterback coming in in the 21 uh, class, and Ty Thompson, who's now the highest-rated Oregon recruit uh, at quarterback of all time. So Chuck kind of has a ticking clock to be able to prove himself before reinforcements come in. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. Okay, looking forward to seeing some of that. Um, in the defensive secondary, we saw the names of Graham and Lenore uh, opt out, assuming they are gone and assuming that they don't come back for any uh, modified season. What else does the Oregon secondary look like? Uh, they really grew into something fierce over the course of uh, last season, Javon Holland in particular. And Tyson, am I right And just being a little bit unsure if Javon Holland might even come back or opt out himself? 
Yeah, I'm not sure on Holland. I don't have a great feel with him, but I mean, he's a potential top two round pick, and I don't know how much things change for just forecasting that for if you're a prospect, if you're starting the season that late in the year. Um, I know for a guy like Sewell, he's already signed an agent, and it makes it a lot harder to come back. I, I do think the NCAA, if they're ever going to make uh, a one-time uh, provision to let guys come back, it'd be this year. But um, it, it's tougher to predict with Holland because he didn't opt out yet. I, I think a lot of people thought he was going to, but he hasn't. So um, I, I guess that's something that we'll, we'll keep an eye on in the coming weeks. But, you know, th- this is a secondary that still has, you know, Brady, Brady Breeze is going to be back. You're, you're defensive MVP. Uh, it will be kind of fun to see if he can do what he did last year over the second half of the season over the course of the full year. Um, again, uh, I, I think Verone McKinley had a very successful freshman year for the Ducks. I think he's one of the most cerebral players on the team. He's very smart, and now that he's getting further into the, the program, he'll, he'll be kind of growing into that college body. Um, he, he could be a guy that potentially takes over at the nickel position. Um, and yeah, I, like, like I mentioned earlier, I'm just really excited to see what Michael Wright does, uh, you know, now that he has a full-time position because he was electric last year. I think, I think people remember him from, uh, his two kickoff returns for touchdowns, uh, during the year. But, uh, this was one of the uh, most highly rated, uh, cornerback recruits Oregon's ever had. And, uh, you know, we, we saw flashes from him last year and it would be fun to see, uh, if he can do that over an entire season. And secondaries look a lot better when, when there's a pass rush getting home on the QB. And uh, Oregon's got one of the better ones, I would think, highlighted by Kayvon Thibodeau. You know, I'm sure he would have opted out similar to Panay Sewell if he was draft eligible. But uh, he's on campus, right? Or I assume that he's going to be on campus shortly if he's not already. And uh, if practice begins, uh, he certainly will be. This year for Kayvon Thibodeau, do you expect him to make another leap? No, oh, absolutely. I, I honestly thought that he was Oregon's best player over like the last three weeks of the season last year. And uh, then, then you give him a year and another year in a college weight program after he got all that experience last year. And I mean, this is a guy who knows how good he is. He's playing with that confidence. And now he knows what he's doing at that level, too. I, I thought that he had the potential to have you know, make that leap into being one of the, the nationally discussed guys that, you know, like, you know, like where Chase Young was last year for Ohio State. Uh, I think he's that special of a talent. And I mean, that's ultimately that's two of the best players to ever suit up for Oregon when it comes to talent are going to both have their career shortchanged because of this with, with Sewell and, and Thibodeau. I mean, Thibodeau might end up getting something this year, but um, it, I, I think that's kind of the, the, the toughest thing, just talking very specifically on the football field. Uh, the biggest loss for all this is, is just not being able to see those guys realize their entire Oregon careers. Dyson, we'll get you out on this, but uh, you know, who knows what the schedule will look like as far as number of games and opponents and start dates. When will the Oregon-Oregon State rivalry game uh, take place? But outside of the Oregon Ducks, I mean, of course – Whatever season they get, their goal will be, let's go take the pack, let's go win it. Who are the biggest threats to Oregon doing that, if it's elsewhere in the north or in the south division? Uh, you know, I think USC is a very talented team. It's This is a very cliched answer, but the teams with the experienced quarterbacks, and USC's got a very good one in Slovis, and 
Uh, I, I think in the Pac-12, um, you know, Washington's obviously a talented team. Uh, Christian Gable, our Washington writer, and I did a little talent comparison earlier last week. And the, I mean, Oregon's trending upwards, but the numbers are still pretty close in terms of the overall rosters. But uh, I kind of like Cal, too. Uh, you got a healthy Chase Garbers. Uh, I believe they were undefeated last year when he was healthy. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think it's just the, the teams that kind of know their identities and know what they're what they are good at are, are going to be the ones that uh, uh, have success this fall, winter, spring, whatever the heck it is. On a professional level, it's great to connect with you again, Tyson. Uh, Justice more so, if not more so personally. Great to hear your voice, my friend. Thanks for taking some time on a Saturday morning and talking some college football. We're, we'll look forward to reading your coverage on whatever kind of season the Pac-12 ends up playing, and we should be knowing that shortly. Thanks a lot. Hey, I appreciate that, man, and congrats on the first show, and it, it, it's good to, to just have this in whatever form it is right now. So much appreciated to hear hear this on the radio, man. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Tyson Alger of The Athletic. Follow him on Twitter at Tyson Alger. We'll come back, get you some latest news and notes in college football, and some of my thoughts on the NFL Week 2 schedule. The more I examine Patriots-Seahawks, Boy, it's going to be a tough one for Seattle, but we'll be pulling for him anyway. Leave it here. This is Judas Football Show, talking all things NFL and college football on 750 The Game. It was good. Saturday morning, Judas Football Show. It's a debut episode, a pilot episode. Appreciate you being here. It's good to talk a little bit of football on a Saturday morning. Just fits. Just fits. And uh, Pac-12 Conference, breaking news still going on with them as far as attitudes among the Pac-12 coaches and athletic uh, department heads, athletic directors themselves. Uh, John Wilner has been uh, reporting this morning that uh, a lot of Pac-12 coaches are frustrated as it sits right now that the conference didn't have a plan. John Cazzano at John Cazzano BFT, host of the Bald Face Truth Radio Show, noon to three weekdays here on 750 The Game. He also has a column up. encourage you to go read it right now as far as what the season will look like with number of games. <laughs> One of his captions on Twitter is this, Pac-12 to play six games, eight games? While we wait to find out, don't miss the middle finger some of the conference coaches are giving leadership. Mm. That's not good for Pac-12 leadership. John Wilner cites a source saying, Talk within the Pac-12 is that it could announce this morning that games would start October 31st, and then some presidents pushed back. UCLA is not ready to start October 31st, according to Wilner on Twitter, and possibly a few others. I'm thinking that that coach that talked to Bruce Feldman, dropping the F-bombs, saying that college football is not effing ping pong, you can't just roll up the garage door and start playing. My initial theory was that that was Chip. And the more I think about it, the more that theory, I think, is solidified. 
I think that was Chip. I think USC or UCLA, I should say, particularly because think about Chip. His whole mantra and style has been like athletic players, even on the offensive line. He's got it down to a science with guys' height, weight, fitness. This whole time of not being able to really practice at all in L.A. County, which Gavin Newsom somehow said, oh, no, of course you could practice. Well, you can't really practice if it's limited to 12 players maximum, Gavin. Chip Kelly has really been affected by an inability to do weight-specific training for his program because that is his M.O. the whole way. So, of course, he's going to be the coach with no filter, even though he didn't go on the record by name to Feldman. I'm sure Feldman uh, was comfortable being able to cite an anonymous coach in the Pac-12. But Kelly, in my opinion, would be the coach most affected by a condensed training camp schedule And his school, UCLA, according to Wilner, would not be ready to play October 31st the way that everybody else in the conference seemingly wants to start playing. Halloween. UCLA not ready. Chip Kelly not ready for that. John Wilner also says, The Pac-12 had been a tight-knit, unified ship for six months. That has ended. Head coaches and athletic directors are deeply frustrated. He also says there's a chance the Mountain West could be on the field before the Pac-12 conference. But that would be embarrassing. There are Mountain West teams that play in California too, right? San Diego State chiefly among them. Bottom line is the Pac-12, when they signed the deal with Quidel two Fridays ago, everyone should have started getting ready for a restart of football. Whether that was Halloween, whether that was November 7th, or even November 14th, everyone should have started getting ready two weeks ago. But the fact is, in the Pac-12, not everyone was starting to get ready for that. The rapid result testing was supposed to solve that, but the lack of specific planning. There was general planning. There was theorizing by Larry Scott in the Pac-12, but there was no specific planning. And really, if you have no specific plan of action, do you really have a plan at all? This is Judas Football Show on Sports Radio 750, the game. Heavy on the clock. We'll come back, talk a little bit more about the Pac-12, but also turn our attention toward week two of the NFL season. The top matchups. I'll also give picks outright and against the spread. It's going to be fun. It's going to be a sprint. We'll also hear from Russell Wilson and Bill Belichick ahead of Seahawks Patriots on Sunday Night Football. Judas Football Show on 7.50 The Game. This is Judas Football Show. Talking all things NFL and college football on 7.50 The Game. to Judas Football Show, the debut episode. Thanks for being along for the ride. Sure is fun to be back in the saddle and uh, talking a little bit of football. We talked in the opening hour whether or not the Pac-12 would be able to have a football season, what that might look like, have some breaking news more on that front, as it seems like there's a lot of disappointed, disconcerted Pac-12 head coaches and athletic directors, people falling on different sides of the fence, honestly, with a potential start 
for a Pac-12 season. A lot of coaches out there in the Pac-12 seem like they won October 31st at all costs to be the start date. So it gives them a shot at the very least at competing for a college football playoff. And we detailed a lot of what those ramifications might look like in the opening segment. I'm not so sure, though, if they can get unanimous decision from the CEO group to start on Halloween. And, uh, of course, that is something they are going to have to decide the next time they convene. And that is going to be on uh, next Thursday, September 24th. Also, I had a good conversation with Tyson Allinger of The Athletic talking a little bit of everything, but including uh, the Oregon Duck roster, what kind of shape it might look like. Let's dip into the bag of the NFL, though, shall we? Boy, I love NFL football, and with all the uncertainty in college football, how many games will be played, which conferences are playing, I think the NFL provides a little bit more satisfaction for many people because of its reliability and the fact that it just seems like it's going to get played this year, and the whole season should be played with a postseason and a Super Bowl in hand. Week 2 in the NFL already got started with the Cleveland Browns beating the Cincinnati Bengals 35-30. But the big takeaway was, for me, Joe Burrow is a real one. He's going to be a good player. 61 pass attempts, yes, that in and of itself doesn't really say anything about a guy's talent. But I was impressed by the way that he handled himself for his first road game. And you can't forget, this is a short week for a rookie quarterback playing his first road game in the National Football League. Yes, it's in-state, doesn't have to go very far, but I was curious to see how Joe Burrow was going to handle this situation. And to me... He handled it very well. He passed with flying colors, threw for a whole bunch of yards, a whole bunch of touchdowns. Uh, T. Higgins, I think it's going to be a really solid player. Tyler Boyd has got great hands. A.J. Green, only three catches. But this really came down to Joe Burrow's performance. Three touchdowns, no interceptions. He was sacked three times, and one of those sacks was the Miles Garrett strip sack that put the ball right on the edge of the table for the Browns to punch in one of their touchdowns. But honestly, I was really impressed with Burrow. Some of the throws that he made were high degree of difficulty for a young player to make. Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised because he made a lot of those at LSU, but his receiving talent was so damn good at LSU. I wanted to see what it was going to look like in the uh, NFL. And Burrow did very, very well in my opinion. Baker Mayfield, a lot of criticism around him after week one, as there should have been. He played terribly against the Ravens. Played a little bit better in this game. 9.5 average yards per attempt. Two touchdowns, one pick. Had the 43-yarder to Odell Beckham Jr. A 110 rating as a passer. But the story was really the Browns' ground game. They ran for 215 yards, three touchdowns. That does not bode well, really, for the L.A. Chargers, who did not uh, particularly run the football well week one against the Cincinnati Bengals, a team that, well, looks like they should have ran the ball well against, given the success of Cleveland. So the Browns are 1-0. and Congrats to them. Cincinnati, though, keep your eye on that spread. It was 6 going into kickoff. Cincinnati, the backdoor cover. So anybody that had the Bengals covering the plus 6 on the road, they are happy with the 5-point finish. New York Giants at Chicago Bears. To me, this comes down to the run game for the Giants. Saquon stifled by the Steelers week one Monday night. Daniel Jones did his best efforts to try to bring Big Blue out of that. Could not. Steelers win comfortably by two scores. Chicago Bears run defense didn't do very well with Adrian Peterson and the Detroit Lions in week one. They're without Eddie Goldman, their notorious run-stuffing defensive tackle who opted out of the season due to COVID concerns. 
So this is up to Saquon and the Giants' ground game. If they can move the ball on the ground, they got a shot to win at Chicago. Atlanta at Dallas, another early game on Fox. Going to be a high-scoring affair. We saw the Falcons put up a lot of points and a lot of yards, most of that in a comeback effort after falling behind by two and three scores in the second half at home to the Seahawks. Cowboys defensively without linebacker Leighton Vander Esch. That's going to be troubling for them. And looks like without left tackle Tyron Smith as well. That's going to be a problem for the Cowboys up front. They perform much better with Tyron Smith in the lineup in the same way that Philadelphia Eagles play a lot better when Lane Johnson is suiting up for them. Yeah, you know, there could be con- some concerns for Dak Prescott protecting him in that game with Atlanta. Should be a good one, though, from Big D. Aaron Rodgers coming off a four-touchdown performance week one and a win at Minnesota. First home game for them at Lambeau Field. They are hosting the Detroit Lions. Detroit obviously should have won their game with Chicago. Matt Stafford, some buzz around him for being an MVP this year uh, because he was playing at an MVP caliber level before he got hurt in 2019. But really, it's the Aaron Rodgers show, and he certainly performed incredibly well, throwing touchdowns to Devontae Adams, Marquez Valdez, Scantling, and a whole bunch of others. Green Bay hosting Detroit. Jacksonville is at Tennessee, a couple of 1-0 teams there after Garner Minshew guided the Jags to a victory week one over Phillip Rivers in Indianapolis. Tennessee, of course, 1-0 after barely squeaking out a Monday night win in Denver. I think I like Tennessee to come back and win this game, but... Gardner Minshew will have a thing or two to say about that. We'll give out picks in the final segment of the show. Mentioned Phillip Rivers. He needs a bounce-back game. Did not perform well late at Jacksonville. Indianapolis at home, taking on Minnesota Vikings. Very intriguing game. Both these teams 0-1. Minnesota's defense looks shoddy against Aaron Rodgers last week. Uncharacteristic for Mike Zimmer and company. Indianapolis's offense is going to be challenged. I- I'm interested to see how Frank Reich and Phillip Rivers improve and progress week over week and it needs to really start this week because if you fall down 0-2 losing a home game your playoff chances diminish significantly we all know this without Marlon Mack as well are the Indianapolis Colts out for the season with an ACL tear and I've got questions about the Colts defense Buffalo at Miami Josh Allen played pretty well in week one against the New York Jets on the road at the Miami Dolphins who let Cam Newton run pretty much all over them week one San Francisco at New York Jets. The Niners without George Kittle, without Debo Samuel. Not sure if Debo will be re uh, will be ready for this Week One game, but we'll see about that. Gotta like the 49ers so to bounce back because the Jets are terrible. L.A. Rams and Philadelphia Eagles. It's a good matchup to me, but I like Philly at home. Rams getting that win on Sunday Night Football over the Cowboys. It was a strong start out of the gate for them. Philly. Of course, losing in surprising fashion against a Washington football team. But I do like Philly to bounce back this week. Two more games, really, in the morning slate of Week 2. That would include Denver at Pittsburgh. Denver 0-1, Pittsburgh coming off the Monday night win over the Giants. I think Big Ben ended up looking pretty good once his arm got in game shape again. It took him a couple of quarters to show off the arm against the Giants, but the Steelers are looking like one of the stronger defensive teams and should be able to handle Denver, but we'll dive into that a little bit later. And then the last game of the early slate is Tampa Bay and Carolina Sunday morning as Tom Brady takes on the Carolina defense. Carolina defense is bad, but for a lot of bad teams, Carolina's offense is going to put up a lot of yards and a lot of points this season. 
with new offensive coordinator Joe Brady, who called a lot of the passing game for the reigning college national champion LSU Tigers last year, leading Joe Burrow, of course, to the Heisman Trophy. So Joe Brady's offense against the Tampa Bay defense, that's going to be interesting. But Tom Brady against the Panther defense might be taking a look at uh, taking the over on that point total on Sunday morning. Russell Wilson on the Dan Patrick Show will take a listen to some of that audio ahead of Seahawks and and, uh, Patriots on Sunday night football. Uh, Dig into the later games as well and give some picks out in the final segment. We'll also reset the absolute latest because it is a fluid situation going on with the Pac-12 conference. A lot of mistrust, a lot of uh, disinformation, of course, a word that we're all too familiar with in these times. And a lot of uncertainty amid coaches and athletic directors in the Pac-12 conference. More Judas football show coming right back Saturday morning here on 750 The Game. This is Judas football show. Talking all things NFL and college football on 750 The Game. Pac-12 season, will it happen? Probably. What it will look like is anybody's guess. When the start date will be is anybody's guess as well. Most coaches, per reports, want to start Halloween October 31st. Some programs, I'm looking at you, Chip Kelly and UCLA, are just not ready to start October 31st. Totally understandable. But... A lot of this would have been solved if there had been clear, specific directives from the Pac-12 conference after they announced the Quidel partnership two Fridays ago. You lack specific plan? Do you really have a plan at all? We're going to talk about more about that a little bit later on in the program as we're into Hour 2 now. Gearing towards some NFL, and that's what we're going to do on the Judas Football Show. We're going to be talking college football specifically with an eye on the Pac-12, regardless if there's a season or not, whatever it may look like. Uh, But we're also going to talk about the National Football League because I love the NFL. I can't get enough of football in general, but the NFL in particular. As a Seahawks fan myself, I try to pride myself on on seeing things rationally with the Seahawks as best as I can, and i got to say, the more I examine the matchup Sunday night with the New England Patriots, the more concerned I am about the Seahawks' chances to win the next game. And I'll unpack that a little bit uh, later on in the program. But Russell Wilson was on the Dan Patrick Show, and there were some good exchanges between the two on Friday morning right here on 750 The Game. And wanted to reset some of this in case you missed it. Russell Wilson with DP. He's uh, Russell Wilson Jr., the third, beat the Falcons in Atlanta. He uh, threw for four touchdowns. They host the Patriots coming up Sunday night. He just uh, debuted his new podcast called Danger Talk, and we'll uh, talk about that coming up. What did you watch on TV last night at home? Oh, what's up, Dan? First of all, um, you know I, I watched the game last night. It was a, it was actually a great game to watch. You know, anytime football's back, it's a good thing. So uh, it, it was definitely a good game. But how do you watch a game? I I, I analyze everything. Okay, I, I'm like back there playing quarterback. I'm making. You know, I'm making the moves. At the same time, I'm also a fan. You know, so when certain guys make great catches, I'm cheering as loud as I can. So I, I'm, you know, I'm a problem when I'm watching a game. Did you hear what Belichick had to say about you? I didn't hear exactly what he said, but All I, right. I heard. Right. Let, let me play it because I, man, this is a love letter to you, Russ. Here's uh, here's Coach Belichick. This guy's a tremendous player. Honestly, I think 
he's you know in a way maybe underrated by by the media or the fans i don't know but i mean i don't, I don't really see anybody better than this player he can do everything he's got obviously great leadership playmaking skills uh, he plays very well in the most critical situations in the game with his decision making you can put him up against anybody since he's been in the league literally anybody or in any category really he never said that about tom brady russ yeah, listen. I, I think he's trying to. I think he's trying to warm me up for the game. <laughs> listen, I, I, no, it, definitely to hear something like that from uh, Coach Belichick. He's one of the, you know, if he's the best coach arguably to ever coach the game. You know, with all these championships he's won and over the past twenty years and what he's done. And you know, I, I, I'm interested in this game not just because of Cam and I, but uh, more so be, between the two oldest coaches and Pete Carroll, sixty-nine, and, and Coach <laughs> Belichick being sixty-eight. But both both of those guys have so much wisdom and understanding of the game you know I think I think more than anything else though um you know for me it's about my teammates it's about what they get to do and how they get to play and and they make me uh look better than I am I guess I don't know but you know for me every day I wake up I I, I wake up to try to be the best in the world you know it's 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 in my head every day to try to create a legacy that people can remember and uh and, and try to be you know one of the greatest if not the greatest quarterback to ever play this game do you think you're the best quarterback in the NFL do I think I'm the best quarterback in the NFL? I I, I believe so, okay. you know, without a doubt. Okay. I think, but there's some great ones for sure. I think that uh, you got guys like Patrick Mahomes. You got guys obviously like Lamar, who had such a great year last year. And, um, Deshaun Watson, and then you got guys like obviously um, the guys who've been so great for so many years, and and, and Tom and Drew and uh, you know Aaron, those kind of players. So you know, for me, I, I'm just grateful to be you know getting to play this game. You know, one of 32 men in the world. Uh, you know, and, and uh, to have this opportunity. I think also at the same time, you know, with everything that's happened this offseason with COVID and, 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 and all the things going on in America, you know, honestly, Dan, just to be able to play this game and to get out on the field, you know, we, we played with nobody in the stands the other day, and I felt like I was, I was playing minor league baseball again all over again. <laughs> but uh, but it, was, uh, it was a good time for sure. And, of course, facing the Patriots, you know, those Super Bowl questions are going to, Come back. Have they come back this week about when Seattle played uh, New England in the Super Bowl? No, they haven't come back. I mean, we've played them. We played them at, at, in 2016. We played um, them in Foxborough. Great matchup. Great game. Uh, you know, we got to, the media had asked me about that game, too, as well. And just how that was one of the best games uh, they, they've seen. So we've always had some great matchups. I go back to 2012, too, and my rookie year. And I think that's when uh, I really, you know, knew that, you know, I knew that I could play, but I think people started realizing, okay, this could be, this could be interesting here in Seattle. So I think it's been a blessing, you know, like I said, just to, you know, get back out there and play ball. Again. But I also think because you came in, people didn't know much about you in the Big Ten or the ACC, and then you had the defense that was the star of those teams. I think that's where people took a while to really discover you. I think you became an overnight sensation after maybe five years. It just took a longer period of time. Like even the Super Bowl, I said you were the best player on the field in that Super Bowl against the Patriots. And then you won a Super Bowl too. Yeah, no, I think for me, uh, you know, I've had some great teammates and great coaches and some great people around me. I think to do anything great in life, you got to have support. You got to have great players around you. You know, you got to have those superstar players too as well. And it's been, a, it's been a great process. You know, for me, you know, like I said, it's, I love the process of it all. And, you know, my job, you know, especially now, you know, being my ninth year in the league is to, to, to help guys like DK Metcalf be the best in the world of what he does, to help continue to help Tyler Lockett, you know, show up and just show out every time he steps on the field. It's he's amazing. That guys like Greg Olson, who are tremendous teammates, and Will Disley and 
such such great players, guys like Chris Carson. I want him to be the best running back in the league and him to continue to do what he does. So Yeah, but you speaking know, of the running game, Russ. Yeah. Is this the year Pete Carroll lets you throw the football in the first three quarters as opposed to the fourth quarter? Well, I, I think we definitely uh I think we definitely mix it up a little bit more. You know, I think that we have such tremendous talent on the edge, you know. We think about DK Tyler, uh, so many different guys that can make plays. So you know, uh, I, I I keep knocking on Pete's door. Just, uh, <laughs> I, but but do you get mad at him? Like, have you ever said, Coach, can you stop making me win games in the fourth quarter? How about we try to win games in the first, second, and third quarter? Well, I think I think we got a good stat. I think Coach Carroll and I, I think we got a good stat. It's like we're fifty-seven and zero when leading at half, or fifty-eight and zero, or something like that. So I I, I keep knocking on Coach's door and say, Hey, let's just keep leading at half. <laughs> Well, that is part of Russell Wilson's conversation on the Dan Patrick Show Friday morning. You're listening to Judah's Football Show. Debut episode on 750 The Game on this Saturday. Seahawks-Patriots Sunday Night Football. When we come back, I'll examine that matchup a little bit more. Explain why I'm a little wary about the Seahawks on Sunday night. Even as a Seattle fan, there are some matchup concerns. Dig into that a bit more. Bring you the latest on the moods around the Pac-12 conference. There seems to be plenty of dissonance, dissonance, I should say, and uh, plenty of distraught coaches and ADs in the Pac-12 frustrated with Pac-12 leadership as we hurdle ever closer to the next time the CEO group meets Thursday, September 24th. You would assume at that point some type of vote on A, if they're going to play a college football season this fall, and B, when they would be able to start. A lot of October 31st optimism, but it's not universal. UCLA, Chip Kelly, they would not be ready by Halloween. Judas Football Show, 750 the game. This is Judas Football Show, talking all things NFL and college football on 750 the game. You know, one of the reasons I uh, started this show is just because, frankly, why not? <laughs> and it seems as good a time as any to be talking football again, considering the uniqueness of what college football looks like. There are plenty of topics that branch off from that, but particularly, specifically, regionally, locally, Pac-12 football, what's happening? A lot's unfolding even in real time this Saturday morning, and John Wilner's all over it. He is a friend of 750 The Game. Of course, regular appearance is on The Bald Face Truth with John Cazzano. He writes, quote, the Pac-12 is having its Big Ten moment. The unified group of conference executives, presidents, athletic directors, and coaches that have navigated the pandemic for six months has fractured with deep frustration at multiple levels. According to Wilner, the aggravation boiled over after presidents declined on Friday to set a start date for the season, and that likely delays season openers until November 7th. Now, here's basically why that's important, is because if you are able to play on Halloween, you at least give yourself reasonable sample size to compare with the pack, or with the Big Ten, I should say, 
as well as the Big 12, who's already underway, as well as the ACC, who is already underway, and as well as the SEC, which will get underway next weekend. But November 7th really, in all effects, nixes you from college football playoff consideration. That's the way I see it. There is no way that a team that has played seven games maximum, and that would be the maximum amount of games for a Pac-12 champion to play if they start November 7th with no bye weeks, six regular season games, and a Pac-12 championship game. In theory, it's completely theoretical. None of this is actually real. It's just funny money at this point. But in theory, six regular season games, you go 6-0, and you win the Pac-12 title. Let's keep it going. Let's say it's the Oregon Ducks. Say the Oregon Ducks do this. They beat USC, and they go 7-0, and and they're the Pac-12 champions. But if you put that up against an unbeaten SEC, an unbeaten Big 12, an unbeaten Big 10, and an unbeaten ACC, there's absolutely no way you're getting in. However, if you add another game on Halloween, and especially if that Halloween game, as Wilner points out, it could be against a non-conference opponent that's also doing a rapid result daily testing, that at least gives you another step forward, and the revenue alone from Halloween, according to Wilner, will save a lot of jobs within programs, within athletic departments, and within the conference itself. It's worth it to try to start on Halloween. But not everybody's ready. Chip Kelly and UCLA are not ready. They are not ready to start practicing as early as, certainly not this Monday, but that's not going to happen anyway. Pac-12 CEO group is going to meet again next Thursday. But even if they were to start practicing Monday, the 28th of September, six weeks of hard training before playing, that would be November 7th. But it would be five weeks of training in order to get ready for Halloween. And my theory is that it was Chip Kelly, that anonymous coach that talked to Bruce Feldman of The Athletic, that was dropping the expletives, that was speaking with no uncertain amount of frustration about expediting training camp schedules. You know, a guy like Chip needs a little bit more time, not less time, to get his team ready, especially safely, which is a valid concern, and I understand where he's coming from. But that's one of the reasons why there's fracture. That's one of the reasons why there's frustration. Not all the coaches are seeing it the same. Not all the ADs are seeing it the same. There seems to be unified frustration, though, from the coaches and the ADs that the conference as a whole didn't have a specific plan of action for the two weeks since they announced the partnership with Rapid Result Testing Provider and Data Tracking Provider, Quidel. The last two weeks, the Pac-12's been slow through the mud. This was the time to get going. The partnership with Quidel didn't buy you time to do nothing. It bought you time to get busy. And meanwhile, a conference that didn't have the corporate partner with Quidel that the Pac-12 is saying is a game changer, the Big Ten didn't announce some lavish corporate partnership with a company like that. What are they doing? They're getting going. They're playing football. They're doing daily antigen testing. That's basically being done campus by campus, basically locally in-house with no lavish Quidel partnership. I'm not saying that Quidel partnership's a bad thing. It is a good thing. But if you if you tote it as a game changer and then do nothing in terms of planning for two weeks, that's a failure. It's a failure. And the Pac-12 is now officially having its Big Ten chaos moment. We'll go away. We'll come back. We'll break down uh, the latest... With uh, the NFL Week 2 schedule, I'll tell you why I'm a little bit more concerned now about the Seahawks and Patriots as a Seahawks fan than I've been before. 
We'll get into that matchup and give uh, winners against the spread and outright for Week 2 in the NFL. Judas Football Show, back for a final segment after this on 750 The Game. This is Judas Football Show, talking all things NFL and college football on 750 The Game. Well, some things you just can't make up uh, when you read them in the stories and the the news of the day. And this certainly qualifies. I just uh, got wind of this from the University of Colorado. The director of football operations at Colorado, Brian McGinnis is his name. He has been issued a ticket by law enforcement for conducting a 100-player hike on a Colorado mountain trail. Boulder officials told the Boulder Daily Camera on Friday evening. So Brian McGinnis, the director of football operations at Colorado, was ticketed for conducting this 100-player hike on a Colorado mountain trail. He's been ticketed for violating a public health order and a failure to obtain a large group permit, which was needed to have more than 24 people to gather. Park Rangers told the newspaper that 108 people were in the Buffalo's group on Thursday and that many were not wearing masks or social distancing from others on the trail. Colorado Athletic Director Rick George said in a statement that players involved in this hike had tested negative for COVID-19, but he also noted the team's error, saying, We acknowledge the lapse in judgment and apologize for our football team partaking in a group activity like this on public open space amid the current COVID-19 climate. We share in the community's concern and anxiety about the recent spike in COVID cases and We do not tolerate actions that are contrary to public health orders. So, Colorado goes on this 108-player hike outdoors, where I'm not sure if uh, masks are mandated outdoors in every single state. Uh, Well, I know they're not in every single state, but I'm not sure where Colorado falls on that. But you still should be practicing a little bit of social distancing, and it looks like neither of those uh, were the case and a ticket by law enforcement has been issued to Brian McGinnis. He's the fall guy. Brian McGinnis is the fall guy, not Carl Durrell, the new head coach of Colorado. Uh, Brian McGinnis gets the uh, ticket from law enforcement, the director of football operations with the Colorado Buffaloes. What a time. What a time to be alive. Goodness. Latest on the Pac-12 is a lot of frustration over not being able to start on Halloween on October 31st. Sounds like many, if not most, coaches want to start on October 31st for the Pac-12 schedule and that they thought that that should have been announced this morning by the Pac-12 conference during the primary window of national attention on college football, college game day, ESPN, down in Louisville today for Louisville-Miami. But, of course, Pac-12 presidents and chancellors on Friday, they didn't have a vote and they felt like they couldn't come away with a unified decision And so they're going to meet again next Thursday, September 24th. But precious time is ticking with all of this. And if you want to have a team that is got a resume that decently resembles something of college football playoff consideration, which means you'd have to have a team undefeated that wins the Pac-12 title game 
in order to compare with the likes of probably Ohio State in the Big Ten, probably Bama or uh, Georgia or somebody out of the SEC, maybe even LSU, depending on what they look like. Um, Clemson out of the ACC, probably Oklahoma out of the Big 12 Conference. So you would need an unbeaten team that wins the Pac-12 title game. Is six regular season games, that would be the case if they start November 7th. Is that going to be enough of a resume builder? Probably not. We detailed in the opening segment, what really is the incentive of making the college football playoff this year? Because whether you like it or not, it's a different looking playoff than any other year before this. And resumes are going to look a whole heck of a lot different. But there's still going to be a playoff. They're going to select teams on Sunday, December 20th, one day after the Big Ten is going to have its conference title game on the 19th. There's going to be two semifinal games, the Rose Bowl and the Sugar Bowl, and those sure as heck aren't moving from New Year's Day if the College Football Playoff Committee can help it. You're already going to have diminished revenue returns this year in the college football playoff. That is inevitable, particularly with limited and maybe no fan attendance. So you have to maximize the television window that you get on New Year's Day if you want any type of decent revenue from that day. And who knows what the modifications to the media rights deal between the playoff and ESPN are going to have. But every conference gets a piece of that pie, whether or not they have a team competing in the playoff. But John Cazano on Twitter rightly points out, don't forget that teams that do compete in the playoff make an extra $6 million for their conference. So it's not like there's no difference between making the playoff and not making the playoff financially. But even if the Pac-12 isn't represented in the playoff, they miss out on $6 million. Yes, but they would still get probably around 50 or $60 million from the media rights distribution split. Normally, it would be $85 million on a year that they don't have a team in the Rose Bowl because the Rose Bowl is part of the playoff. So the Pac-12, if they don't play in the playoff, they don't play in the Rose Bowl. They generally get $85 million from the revenue distribution split from the playoff. I'm theorizing that's going to be diminished significantly because of limited or no fan attendance, et cetera, et cetera. But if you still play the semifinals on New Year's Day, maybe you're still talking 45 or $50 million for your conference, but you could get an extra $6 million if you get a team placed in the semifinal. But John Wilner rightly points out, right now there's dissonance, there's confusion, and disappointment among uh, Pac-12 coaches, ADs, and the conference leadership itself. No specific plan or urgency has been in place since the Quidel partnership was announced Thursday, September 3rd. Wow. There should have been more urgency. There should have been more specific planning. Because if you don't have specific planning, do you really have planning at all? Because of all the fluidness in the uh, Pac-12, I haven't been able to get to my NFL picks. And we're up against uh, the final couple minutes of the debut episode of Judah. Judah's football show here on 750 The Game. Thanks for being with us. Uh, but I did want to make a pick on Seahawks-Patriots, and I was teasing earlier why I'm a little bit more concerned for Seattle going into this game the more I examine the matchup. And it's Seattle looked so good offensively. They threw the ball on early downs. That is so important. If you let Russell Wilson throw, whether it's out of 12 personnel, uh, whether it's out of uh, a pro-style play-action boot, Throwing the ball on first and second down is key to the Seahawks' short-term and long-term success, in my opinion. You don't need to be running the ball on first and second down the way Pete Carroll has always wanted to play football. The trenches is what concerns me for Seattle in this game. The right side of the offensive line in particular, uh, where you 
have a guy like Brandon Shell, who had a couple of really tough moments against Tack McKinley last week against Atlanta, leading to three Russell Wilson sacks. Damian Lewis, the rookie from LSU at right guard, this is only his second game. It's not like New England has got stars on the defensive line, but they've got really good linebackers, uh, most notably Chase Winovich at linebacker, outside linebacker in the 3-4 Belichick scheme. I think New England, is, as much as it hurts me to say, I think they're going to be the better team in the trenches on Sunday night football. And that in and of itself is going to be a problem for Seattle. So they're going to have to get a little bit more creative, maybe a little bit more in the screen game from uh, Schottenheimer. It's going to be a close game. It's going to come down to late in the fourth quarter with no fans there. I think Cam is going to be decent. But in the end, I'm picking the Seahawks to win this football game. A final score of 23-20. to Seahawks is my pick. That's going to wrap it up for us on the debut pilot episode of uh, Judas Football Show. We will uh, do this again next Saturday. Why not, shall we? John Catano back with the Bald Face Truth Monday at noon right here on 750 The Game. Have a great weekend.